Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. His face floods with light and relief. You have won second prize in a beauty contest. Collect ten pounds. Monopoly, first invented as the landlord's game in 1903, endlessly reimagined and reinterpreted ever since. Welcome to The Rest is History, with the old Kent Road of history, Tom Holland, and with me, Mr. Mayfair, <laughs> Dominic Sambrook. Hello, Tom. You're a big Monopoly Hello, fan? What a, what, a, what a wonderful introduction. You've won the game of The Rest is History already. I have. We should stop right now. Um, it'll be downhill from here. So today's subject is a huge one, actually, isn't it? It's history as entertainment, history as um, board games, video games. And I thought we'd go in first with reenactments, because that's obviously something that you know a lot about, because you've written about it in the past. And we had a question to me from Roland Miners, who says, I seem to remember the Romans did battle reenactments as part of their games. So we're always told that the stadiums could be flooded for sea battles. And he says, was this a bit of theming for gladiators to kill each other? Or was this actual reenactment of history? And I guess for as long as there's been history, Tom, people have reenacted it, right? Yeah, well, people are probably remembering Gladiator, but uh, Russell Crowe plays the part of the Carthaginians in the Battle of Zama, where the Carthaginians yeah. lost to the Romans, but in <laughs> Gladiator they win, which, of course, um, is, is part of the fun of reenacting history, isn't it? I mean, it's part of the fun of, of staging these is that occasionally uh, you get different results. So we obviously the Romans would have exercised some control over that. So we know, for instance, that after Claudius conquers Britain, he restages his um, his capture of Colchester. There was no question that the Britons were going to win that. Obviously, the Romans had to win it. But yes, I think um, you do get the sense. Um, we know that Claudius also sponsored a great uh, naval battle in which I think the Rhodians and the Syracusans fought each other. And I think that's a bit more like those kind of computer games where you can get the Aztecs fighting the Babylonians or something. You know, yeah. you bring people different different people to, to fight each other and of course in the the style of armor that the the gladiators wore so that you had a, a type called the samnite which was a, a central italian people defeated by the romans kind of you know 
in the third century um, BC. Uh, and then you have Thracians who were another kite in northern Greece. Um, and I think there was the sense with gladiatorial combat that it was about reminding the Romans of their own history, of their martial qualities. You know, Rome is this city at the heart of a great peaceful empire. So people did slightly worry that they were forgetting their martial values. So there was, I think, a sense in which gladiatorial combat existed to remind the Romans of their ancient martial history. Um, so, yeah, I think I think you could count that as historical reenactment to a degree. And sort of telling history in itself is a reenactment, isn't it? I mean, the weird thing about history is that, you know, you're you're sort of performing it when you retell it on the page. Um, and there's always this issue with history or you know, we get a lot of comments on Twitter about, you know, to what extent is history social science or to what extent is it is it a kind of literary entertainment? And entertainment is kind of baked into history from the beginning, isn't it, with Herodotus and so on? And people read that stuff because it's fun and because they want to have but fun, I think, right? But you think also, though, that baked into it is a, a kind of when you read something about the past, you you can feel this yearning to see it for yourself. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And so... You know, so we talked about Arthur. We talked about King Arthur and the round table at Winchester, which almost certainly was built to mark an attempt by knights under Edward I to recreate um, Camelot. Right. And that was something, you know, so that's, that, that was a theme in tournaments throughout the Middle Ages was that people would come dressed as you know, Galahad or Lancelot <laughs> or whatever. And it was a kind of desire to make real this world of, of, of romance that people believed, you know, had actually happened. They had a sense, as we do, of a kind of lost world that they can never recapture. Yeah. And they wanted a yeah. glamour. They think that the past is glamorous. Do they? Yes. I, I, and then, of course, famously, there was an attempt to recreate the tournament um, in the 19th century after Queen Victoria's coronation, <laughs> which lots of people felt had, had been rather drab. And they got rid of this kind of tradition where the the, the champion of the queen comes in and challenges um, someone to single combat if they're not going to accept her as, as, as queen. And so the Duke of Eglinton set up this tournament in, in, in Ayrshire, which, of course, it, it rained. Of course. <laughs> surprising. So it was all in that absolute kind of washout. But that that's kind of brilliant. That, that whole kind of Victorian strain of cod medievalism. Yeah, which was hugely influential on, on architecture and all kinds of things. But it was, you know, they, they, they did actually try and stage a tournament. And I guess that that is absolutely something that, that goes into the 20th century, because, of course, the more that you have a consumer society, the more you have money that you can spend on recreating this kind of stuff, the more people do it. Yes. And I suppose there's a I remember having a conversation once with a guy called Ian Mortimer, who writes these books called The Time Traveller's um, Guide to a Particular Period, and he'll write about history as though it's a guidebook. You know, this is where you stay, this is where you eat. And it was about the question about history as entertainment. And sometimes it's easy to forget, I think, when you're a sort of academic historian um, engaged in historiographical arguments with your peers, that actually the reason people get into history and the reason actually people are listening to this podcast is because they is because it's fun. It's because there's something... You're saying this podcast is fun. Well, I think it's, I, I'm I having think fun anyway, even if nobody that. else is. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, there's that sense that you, you're interested in history, not just because it's instructive. I mean, we've done a whole podcast about the lessons of history, but because, as you said, there is this, there's this sort of insatiable, or oh, I mean, literally insatiable yearning to see people who've been before us and to see their world that we can never, that is completely out of reach. And that's why people will always do these kind of reenactments and things. 
But when it comes to reenactment, there is actually a kind of border zone, isn't it, where it becomes living history. And people will say that um, if you want to understand something, you actually have to experience it. So I, yeah. about five years ago, talking on the subject of medieval tournaments and recreating them, I, I find generally when you go to, you know, they, they recreate them at National Trust, I find incredibly dull because they're, they're, they're just staged. But um, about five years ago, I went to... I think it's called officially called medieval warfare or something. And it's, it's kind of like a sport. Um, and they staged it at this castle Belmonte in La Mancha in the middle of Spain, which is where they filmed El Cid, the Charlton Heston film. Yeah. Um, and they have this huge international tournament. It's kind of like the World Cup. They had teams from America and Britain and Germany all around the world. Um, and I thought it was going to, again, be really dull. It was brilliant. It was absolutely fantastic. So what the rules are that they have a kind of um, kind of like a football pitch, I guess, and you're not allowed to go outside the football pitch and you, you map up, you know, one on one, five on five. The, the, the climax was 100 on 100. 100 people. I mean, that's like that's a proper battle. Oh, it was really, really brilliant. It's one of the all great sporting events that I've ever been to. And the rule is essentially that you can smack anyone around the head you like you, you know you don't have a sword you don't have anything sharp but you have kind of blunt axes or maces or whatever and you can just smack people and as long as they are on two feet the battle continues the moment they they touch anything else so with their hand or their elbow or the head or whatever then they're out and well it was it was amazing and and the argument for this being educational was that you you know you the, the better your armor the better you yeah. are able to stand up. So um, I spoke to the, Ger- the captain of the German team, who, who um, I think he was a, a travel agent, but in, in his spare time, he'd go around chapels and churches all around um, Germany looking at, um, you know, effigies of knights in armour. But he's looking, looking for, for tips. Advantage, <laughs> yeah. Looking for tips. And it, was, it, was, it was such fun. But also the other brilliant thing about that was that it was also very, very political because yeah. um, I think that this sport had been begun by the Russians, and the Russians were uh, apparently rather aggressive. And so they'd been frozen out by all the other countries. Wow. And in fact, I think some of the people who were involved in that then went on to take part in the, the, the invasion of Crimea. <laughs> That's <laughs> interesting. A- yeah. Which is itself a kind of reenactment of Tsarist glory. You know, I mean, yes, to what extent are so politicians? So is Boris Johnson a kind of Churchill reenactment act? I mean, that's. Uh, I suppose you can argue reenactment is is baked into politics itself. But on the politics, that's a really interesting thing because I, have you ever been to this place in France called Puy du Fou, which is this one of Europe's most popular theme parks, which is all about history? No, I've been I've been to the Asterix Park. I've never been to the Asterix one, but the Puy Fu one is fascinating because it was so it has a series of um, zones. One, there's one about the Vikings. There's one about there's a couple about the Middle Ages. They have which you would love. They have a Roman amphitheater. I mean, they have an amphitheater where they have shows for chariot racing, gladiatorial battles, and and wild animals. Um, it says in the brochure they have executions, but I don't believe that can be true. <laughs> um, but it's massively popular okay. in this place. They get hundreds of thousands, millions of people. It's the second most visited theme park in France after Disneyland. And um, what's interesting about it is it's set up by a politician um, who was originally um, Mitterrand's culture minister, Philippe de Villiers, who's now very right-wing, very anti-Islam, anti-immigration, kind of an unashamed French nationalist, conservative. And, and the, the version of history that you get is kind of kings, pure kings and battles. 
it's a kind of it's a kind of the French equivalent of our island story. So there's stuff about Richelieu's musketeers. They have a thing about the Battle of Verdun from World War One, and it is colossally popular. I mean, I, it's have hard been, to imagine. Have you been to that? I haven't actually. I'm talking about it with with. Um, I was going to go before COVID. My son is desperate to go, and every now and again to amuse ourselves during lockdown, we would watch videos. You know, in that sort of terrible <laughs> of sort executions. of third hand tourist way, we'd watch YouTube videos of other people who've been yes. and and sort of weeped that we can't go ourselves. I mean, it looks amazing, but I was thinking, could you do it in a less right wing way? I mean, could you do a left wing? history theme park and i'm not sure would if they did a sort of peterloo reenactment and a thing about the chartists i mean tony ben would like but they have level a day in burford which is a which yes. is a kind of big reenactment i mean it's a reenactment as in people turn up with posters and shout about john lilburn or something well i mean there's a sealed knot isn't there which is yeah uh, I think well, I can see you as a years, sealed 50 knot. years old now. Have you, have you done now? the sealed knot? I bet you've done the sealed knot. It's, it's, you? it's, well, I, I remember I've never, no, I've never actually taken part in it. I always had secret yearnings. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You'd be a cavalier though, wouldn't you? Be an, I know. I'd be an Ironside. Would you? I'd be an Ironside. I'd, I'd love to be an Ironside. I'd like to be but like, I, I, can you be Cromwell Spymaster or something? That's what I'd want to do. Milton, perhaps. I'd just sit there being blind. <laughs> yeah. Writing, read stuff in Latin. Um, <laughs> I, but I, it's kind of, that what, there was a um, there was a, a a book a novel by a crime writer called Anthony Price who almost I don't I don't think anyone reads them anymore but I really loved them they were always crime stories thrillers espionage stories revolving around history um, and he had one called War Game which was set in the context of a battle a kind of sealed knot type battle and the gist in that was that everyone on the parliamentarian side was very much on the left and everyone on the uh, royalist side was very much on the right and um a kind of a, a very left-wing guy who's being shadowed by mi5 ends up dead in a ditch with a halberd through his stomach <laughs> um sounds great and it, it, it was great i remember it being great and uh, and then it kind of you know turned out to be a big conspiracy theory um but i was kind of wondering whether i, I guess that um you know, if you're on the left, you would be probably drawn to the the roundheads, and if you're on the right, to yeah, the you would. Because because I, I looked up the the sealed knot because I thought we'd probably end up talking about it, and it, it says um, the name of the society derives from a group which during the protectorate plotted for the restoration of the monarchy. So it's it's a, a cavalier society, but it's very here the similarity ends as the present society, and this is in capitals on the website, yeah. is non political and has no <laughs> political affiliation or ambitions. So it seems it's very important for the sealed I, I, but, not to make that clear. I can believe that of them, but at the same time, I think there probably is something uh, temperamentally small because he's conservative about being a reenactor. Don't you think? I mean, if you're super left wing, you probably think what you want to do is build a better tomorrow rather than go back to yesterday yes. and sort of put on a nice hat and stuff, um, which I think is, I'm not saying there's something inherently conservative about hats, but I, there kind of is there, isn't there? <laughs> Definitely, yes. Particularly, they got feathers in. Yeah, but see, I'd want to rein. I'd want to dress up as Stanley Baldwin or something. So it would probably be <laughs> yeah, quite. Of course. Of course. <laughs> the Stan- well, I think that's a massive money spinner. I think you should go ahead with that. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's. I mean, of course, because at the at the furthest extremes, um, yeah. you really are pushing into some quite dodgy areas. So Prince Harry. Um, Prince Harry. Well, yes. Yeah, so Prince Harry dressing up as Nazis. So, so dressing up as Nazis is. It's, taboo, it, it's, it's verboten, as it were. So there was a congressman, Rich Ayat, 
uh, right. about 10 years ago, I think he was, um, he, he was running for, for Congress and um, his candidature got torpedoed because it turned out that he was a reenactor and among the reenactments that he'd done, he dressed up in SS uniform. That's yeah. I think that's hard to come back from that. So dressing up in an SS uniform, I think. I mean, that's you're pushing the pushing the boat out there. The claim that people always make, isn't it, is they just like the uniform. Um, but yeah, it's there's a slight are we the baddies aspect to it that I think is hard to overcome, don't you? So, but so and so also, I was wondering in that context what, and I don't I don't know the answer to this, what the state of play is at the moment with the reenactment of um, wars, of battles in the American Civil War, because I know that that's yeah. a huge scene in America. I mean, they make the sealed lot look like amateurs. I mean, they are amateurs, but you know what I mean? They, they, um, it's huge. But I wonder whether that kind of buys into a subject that we should do in a definitely a separate podcast, which is the lost cause of the Confederacy. So lots of people love to, I mean, the fascination with the Civil War, I think often does have a sort of, political dimension to it in america rather like that whole ecosystem of plantations and and all that sort of stuff um and yeah i mean it would be hard as an outsider i mean maybe our american listeners will disagree and will put us right but as an outsider i think there's an element when you're pulling on a confederate uniform in defense of slavery i mean i know some people will say oh no states rights or whatever but there's obviously slavery is a big part of it that it does feel very highly charged at the moment doesn't it well, I, I mean, there's a big controversy here in Britain about um, the National Trust and to what extent um, visitors should be told about um, yeah. whether people who owned it or built it or whatever, whether they were making their money from slavery. And I yeah. was wondering what the, what the state of play is with the grand plantations in Beaufort or... Well, I, I've been to a plantation. I went to, I went to a plantation called Boone Hall. We were, we were shown around by this absolutely, this sort of vision, this Scarlet O'Hara-like vision. Um, who, you know, told, took us through the, the kitchens and the lovely drawing room and the veranda and all this sort of stuff. Um, but she didn't mention slavery once. And there was sort of a load of huts in the distance. Um, and I said, what was going on in the huts? And she said, <laughs> Oh, that's, this is like the, the staff quarters or something, you know, I mean, this was some years ago. I mean, maybe they've changed their, um, their rubric since then, but there was definitely a downplaying of the, 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 the key element that you would think as a visitor would be would be would loom largest and obviously as a lot of listeners i'm sure will think there's something kind of really a bit tasteless about luxuriating in this world without drawing attention to its single most salient um feature i wonder even um you know even something like the london dungeon where the emphasis is very much on torture and death and murder um you know yeah. is you know, well, is, 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 yeah. is Jack the Ripper? Well, Jack the Ripper, we had we had Hallie Rubenhold on, didn't, and she's very vigorous in campaigning against the Jack, what she sees as the Jack the Ripper industry, um, which is interesting because when I told my son, who's nine, that we were doing a podcast with her, and, she, and he said, is she going to tell us who killed Jack the Ripper? And I said, no, she's more into the women, the victims. And he said, who cares about the victims? I want to hear it. Would Sherlock Holmes have caught Jack the Ripper? And was Jack the Ripper a prince? Those are the two questions that everybody wants well, answered. Questions everyone wants. Yes, yes. Well, I, I mean, I suppose that that the um, you know, if we the things that tend to get reenacted are violent. They are. They're all so violent. Whether it, whether it, yeah. whether it's um, Jack the Ripper in uh, in in um, London Dungeons or um, you know reenactment battles, you don't reenact people. I suppose you, I mean to a degree you do, don't you? Occasionally there are there are kind of um, attempts to. There's, there's that village in um, 
uh, Hampshire, where they've rebuilt um, various huts from various periods of history. Uh, and you do get people who kind of sit around and, and weave and things, but it's it's less inherently dramatic. It is less dramatic. And if you judge if you judge history as an industry more broadly, so you think about films, but also books. I mean, cl- classically, what sells is the Second World War and the Tudors. And the fascination of the Tudors is that people have their heads cut off. <laughs> um, I mean, that's what people yes. like about the story. Yes. It's not just about kind of gowns and, and, and Bibles. Yes, it I is mean, about the, the execution. The execution as acts is key to the success. And, and the, you know, we look now at gladiatorial games. I mean, we will have to do a podcast on gladiatorial games, but we look now on gladiatorial games with horror. I'm sure you would say because of our Christian heritage and we recoil from the spectacle of the blood and all the rest of it. But we consume the blood, don't we, vicariously, I mean, we're going to do video games in a second, but we consume it in the books. I mean, how many authors right now, how many historians are crafting a chapter in which a thousand people die horribly? Yeah. And we're going to read it for people are going to read it for entertainment effectively. Right. And you, you mentioned computer games and indeed board games and an awful lot of those that have a kind of historical setting absolutely do involve lots and lots of people being killed. But, it, you know, it'll be it could be a counter moving across a, a board and you know, entire continents are conquered or in a computer game, you, you know, you storm a city or something, but let's, let's, let's get onto that um, after the break, uh, ball yeah. games and computer games. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Hargan women seem to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot... Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, welcome back to The Restless History. We're talking about history as entertainment, uh, particularly games. And Dominic, you um, you opened this episode by talking about Monopoly. Um, I did, yeah, shamelessly. So Monopoly, is is that strictly um, a game about history? Isn't it a game about capitalism? It's actually, it is. It, well, it's... It's a game about a particular version of capitalism. So, and it's, and it is a historically rooted game. So there are all sorts of arguments about the origins of Monopoly, but as far as we can tell, it began in about 1903 and it was, um, an anti-capitalist game. It was what's called a Georgist game. So there was a guy called Henry George in America who had all these theories about, um, landlordism, about fighting landlordism. So this is the progressive era in America where people are sort of taming the excesses of capitalism, of the sort of Carnegie, 
you know, sort of the rampant railroad kind of American school of capitalism. And the point of monopoly was to illustrate how bad landlordism is. So in other words, if you've got all this property, you can tax, you can, you can, um, you can, you can squeeze your, your tenants and you'll become rich and they will never win. That was the point of it, that you would never win if you didn't get all this, you know, you didn't get all this property. And then basically monopoly evolved and was, there was a big battle over the, the, the patents for it. And it ended up being taken up by the sort of toy companies and turned into a capitalist game in the depression. So it's no longer about showing you how evil it is. Now it's about glorying in it, glorying in your winnings. And obviously it's been very successful since then. But what's interesting is that it is the game that's permanently been reinterpreted politically. So there were Cold War kind of communist versions. And some of our listeners sent in, there was a version done by East German dissidents called Bureaucratopoly, which was mocking the East German system. And then the Hungarian communists, I mean, they had a version of their own called Budget Smartly. Um, now, the actual title in Hungarian is Gazdal Koj Okasan, has my Magyar. Um, uh, we and, need John Wilson here. To we do, yeah, he would be very good us. in this. He would put me right, there's no doubt about that. So, yeah, so Monopoly in itself is a great history. I mean, then presumably are historians of Monopoly um, who see it as a sort of map of the 20th century. Okay, so the implication of that is that it begins as an anti-capitalist board yeah. game, but very rapidly it becomes all about conquering your enemies and becoming as rich and powerful as possible. Yeah, like most games. And on, on that theme, we have a, a question from the splendidly named Dick of Axe. And he says, um, from civilization to risk to Europa Universalist, there is some irresistible urge in humans, it seems, to paint a map one color. Doesn't matter if you're playing a board game or if you're a Roman emperor. Do you agree? I mean, definitely yeah. when it comes when it comes to um, both the board games and computer games, um, Historically themed games, by and large, do seem to involve an awful lot of conquest. They are about conquest. Is there not? It's only just occurred to me hearing that question that um, surely the movement to decolonize board games can only be yeah, weeks well, away, so. right? Because I mean, Risk, um, Diplomacy, all these kind of board games—they're all about creating empires, aren't they? And defeat and smiting your opponents. I mean, it's hard to imagine a game that didn't involve that because that's the that's the pleasure of games well even chess i mean chess is kind of replicating a battle isn't it it's yeah. originally it's chariots and and even in, in 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 the one we have now it's kind of knights and things on battlefields um so risk 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 is the kind of it's the classic example of that so it's a global game yeah i mean it's it's so the setting is is supposedly napoleonic um but it's kind of a the, cold war game don't you think you know it's a sort of or post-world war ii game it's a game see you're right the setting is kind of older but don't you think it, it, it? the mindset is, you know, there are great blocks fighting each other for control of the world? Yes, yeah, so the cards show, you know, cuirassiers and Napoleonic infantrymen and things. But you are you're having to conquer the entire globe and the map is the globe. And yeah. I, the, the, um, that episode we did on the lessons of history and we dwelt very strongly on don't invade Asia. And I remember <laughs> yeah. we always played, I played Risk with my brother who's since gone on course to um host our sister pod about the second world war and um, very distinguished historian in the second world war um and he would always invade asia and so i'd always win i'd, I'd always win i'd always i'd always kind of encourage him say aren't you going to invade asia and he'd go oh, yes i think i will um <laughs> and i think that the trauma of that is what has led him to study the second world wow. war that's a terrible that's my, that's insight my into your brother's psychology. 
But these games, <laughs> seen, now a few years ago, Neil Ferguson, who had a link up with the games company, he published Did a few he? articles saying that he was going to use this game um, in his teaching at Harvard and that this game, I can't remember what, it, what game it was. I don't think it was a terribly successful game, actually, that he had collaborated with it and that it was very useful for instructing you um, about how statecraft worked. And a lot of the time, for most historians, there were kind of guffaws of disbelief and, and sort of scorn. But I actually think games are an incredibly good way of, I mean, that's why the CIA and that's why, you know, the, the Pentagon do war games because they think they're a good way of illustrating the very, the different variables that condition, you know, success or failure in, in war and in diplomacy. Okay. So the one, so you said diplomacy. I think diplomacy is the best. So that's, that's, that's a pre war up to the first world war. Yeah. It's the great powers of Europe. And the reason that's great is that you, you don't take it in turns to have turns. You all do it at the same time. And um, the opportunity to stab your allies in the back yeah. is tremendous. And I, I played it and stabbed my supposed ally in the back so successfully that I won triumphantly. And I've never played it since because I know I can never top that. That's great. <laughs> but you see, you reveal, you reveal your true self in a game, Tom, I think. So, um, yes, you do. That's very do. worrying. Yes. But there's some yes. amazing games. So, uh, who was it? Uh, Andrew Menkes suggested a game called the campaign for North Africa. Now this is an amazing game because it's a seventies game. It's colossally detailed to play this game through so it's the world war ii north african campaign to play it through it takes an estimated 1500 hours and the game itself so recommends 62 days that the game 62 recommends two days that on each side you need five people one of whom is the commander-in-chief and the other is subordinate commanders and it's so complicated that if you're playing as the italians you need to bring water for your pasta to the battlefield. Yes, you know, it- <laughs> I, I love that. I love that. And and um, apparently, I, so I looked up an article on this, um, and apparently that rule isn't even factually accurate because the guy who who invented this game he says the reality is, is that the Italians cooked their pasta with the tomato sauce that came with the cans. Wow! So he made it He's up. done his research. Yeah. He's, he's, and the other um, amazing thing is, he says um, every game turn three percent of your fuel evaporates unless you're the British before a certain date because they used fifty gallon drums instead of jerry cans. Oh, my God. See, there's a level of detail, isn't there? A friend of mine has a game called Twilight Struggle, um, uh, which is a Cold War game. And he always, whenever we go to visit, he always says, you know, is this the moment where we're going to play this game? But, you know, we've got kids. We've got wives. It's kind of hard to find the moment to say, for the next 10 hours, we'll be incommunicado. But it's more than 10 hours, isn't it? I mean, those, ones, those, those games with kind of instruction manuals that are about 200 pages long. Yeah. They... they I mean, it's not as bad as um, the, the North African campaign, but I mean, they, they are pretty long. Having said that, there are, I, so there's another question from um, Ben Jones, and he says, I think my entire knowledge of English geography, aristocratic families, and certainly the Plantagenet family tree is from the board game Kingmaker, always ended with stalemate until the constable of the Tower of London got sent to Rye. Did you ever play Kingmaker? No, I've seen it. I wanted it as a child, but I never got it. So that's set against the War of the Roses. Right, and, yeah, which is itself um, a colossal game, isn't it? I mean, it is a colossal, it's, yes. Yeah, inspiration of Game of Thrones. So you have to fight, but also you have plagues and you have peasants' revolts and you have to issue writs to summon Parliament. So it's actually quite good. And you can go great. around collecting, you know, Warden of the Sink Ports and <laughs> Warden of the Northern Marches and things like that. That's, that's a, a card I've always wanted to have. It's a fabulous game. 
Yeah. And that's, that's, that, that was away a very pleasant three hours. But you know, the terrible thing though, Tom, is when you get older. So I, I finished writing my most recent book about a month ago. And I, as my reward to myself, because obviously we're stuck at home in lockdown, as my reward to myself, I bought a video game for my computer, a strategy game that I could play while my wife was working. And it's called Kaiserreich. And it's, um, it's a, it's a, it's a sort of offshoot of the Hearts of Iron games. So it's set in a world where Germany won the first world war and it's set in the 1930s. Oh, Dominic, that's your kind of dream. It is. It is. And, and you can choose any of these. I, I think there is some sort of slightly politically dodgy elements to it. But anyway, you can choose any country to control. So Britain has become a socialist republic. Um, Austria-Hungary, Austria-Hungary has become a kind of United States, Greater Austria. And I looked at this, I saw the map and I saw the sort of illustration. I thought, brilliant. I cannot wait. And I loaded it up and I, I deleted it about 10 minutes later because Why? I just, you know, you have to produce a lot of steel. Um, it's so complicated. I knew I'd never come to, and I started to read manuals online and people's advice about how to play it. And I just thought, I don't understand what they're saying. And I well, don't enough short. hours. Life is too short. So what about the granddaddy of those kind of ones, which is civilization? Yeah, you I played, played that? that. I have played that so years ago. So you begin with a, a tribe of hunter-gatherers in whatever it is, 4,000 BC. You do. You create you your civilization from you scratch. You create civilization, and then you have to send a space rocket to Alpha Centauri. And you can be any one of a number of civilizations. And what it does, which is what all these games do, is they sort of mirror all those books that you see, which will say, you know, these are the 10 building blocks of a successful nation state, or this is how democracies live and how they die. So the, I always think they're slightly a bit like business books. They try to sort of I, t- turn history into a set of distinct variables. And that's obviously how the game works. The game works on variables. And they say, these are the building blocks of civilization. Now create your own. And it is very, they are very addictive. Um, but they're sort of, they're turning history into a kind of massive spreadsheet, aren't they, to some extent? But they have to, don't they? Because otherwise it doesn't work. But it's very, very deterministic. I mean, it's kind of Marxism, absolute power of 10. And it's also very, I mean, you know, you talked about decolonizing games. I mean, it's, it, it establishes the emergence of European civilization as absolutely the norm that you, you yeah. have to industrialize. And then you have to um, colonize everybody else. And then you, you have to colonize everybody else. And that, that, that is the pattern of... of so um, there's an even better example of a game like that, Tom, which is, um, which is I think, a, 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 the aficionados prefer to civilization, which is called Europa Universalis, which I highly recommend. So in Euro- Europa Universalis starts in about 1450, and you can play till the Battle of Waterloo. And what that does is you choose your country that exists in 1450 or so, and then... The game follows history. So the Reformation happens and the Thirty Years' War breaks out and, and, and set events follow each other. But also there are set technological and cultural developments, which are quite oh, Eurocentric. No, I really want to play this. Which you have to be, you oh. have to see, you get penalized if you don't embrace the printing press or if you don't embrace colonization, then you, your, your stability cost is increased or whatever. So in other words, you have to follow the sort Down of the funnel. Yeah, down the funnel of history. Well, what's fun about that and what is instructive is I think it does reproduce in a way that maybe, you know, an academic seminar can't, the strategic dilemmas, shall we say, of leading a state. You know, if you are Prussia or you are Poland, in a weird way, kind of role-playing it, I think does bring home the difficulties more so than reading it in the most high you know the most beautifully researched monograph you know there is a sense in which role-playing in that way does kind of uh, carry a charge so those computer games part of the fun is obviously 
absolutely being funneled down the the spout of history. And you don't you so to, to an extent, not being able to diverge from it is you know generates the fun. But then in other ways, that is precisely the fun is being able to have Aztecs fight. Yeah, absolutely, or whatever. Um, yeah, that's the it's the incongruity. There's um there's a I I've never been able to work out whether it's true or not. Um, but this story that Gandhi in Civilization, who is incredibly pacifist and never declares war on anyone, when they reach the nuclear age, there's some glitch supposedly that makes him <laughs> incredibly violent and declaring <laughs> nuking everybody. Um, and you can see that um, the 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 part of the fun is having a set figures, set periods of yeah. history, set civilizations, and making them behave in holy. Um, exactly, Martin Luther King becoming ways. dictator yes. of the United States or something yes. would be. Which very I suppose instinct. is a kind of counterfactual, the kind of counterfactuals that you you do where you create alternative timelines yeah. in history, sort of silly. Um, but the other kind of game that you have is a game that plunges you into history in a sort of individual level. So that's say the Assassin's Creed games or Call of Duty. Call of Duty is all about is is basically Second World War reenactment fantasy, people. isn't it? Yeah, it's about killing people. But Assassin's Creed is more interesting and surprised. I'm surprised that you've never played it, Tom, because a lot of it is set in kind of ancient Egypt, I, ancient Greece, and all that sort of thing. And the reason the reason I haven't tried it is the same reason that I haven't taken up crack. I'm sure it's brilliant. Everybody says it's brilliant, but I know that I would never get anything done. Yeah, it's true. You know, I could sit it's in a true, crack yeah. house or I could, or I and could your kind of be... Your a- children are too old now. You see, my son is nine, so he's perfectly, you know, he's the right age to be really into all those, even though they're technically so 18 certificate. Him, yeah, well, we've just, we've just been fighting um, in the Peloponnesian War. Very entertaining. Oh, God. I had You'd to love it. About, I had to do an article in January about... Um, vikings and why they were culturally cool and that was on the back of the release of the new assassin's creed which is set in the viking world and i i thought should i um should i get it and i almost did and then i went and watched i watched the opening loop on youtube instead and it was kind of like methadone i got got a vague (laughs) sense of it but i wasn't wasn't surrendering to it but see all these games are quite political in a way because they're all about i mean they're all about fighting they're all about sort of individual agency. Um, and the sort of, you know, there is this sort of uh, conspiracy theory that underplays them all. So, you know, the world is okay. being controlled by the Templars and stuff. So actually, it looks back to our podcast about conspiracy theories because okay. the games present, as all games do, because they have to, there's a rule book and there's an intelligence that kind of underpins them and binds them all together. So actually what they miss from history is the sort of, as it were, the unexpected, the, you know, the, the messiness, I suppose. They simplify history, don't they? They make it consumable. But you, you still enjoy it. Oh, yeah, I mean, of course. But, um, <laughs> uh, they, but I mean, games are, uh, games are part of human nature, aren't they? I mean, yeah, I, as, you know, we love games. But also the, what Assassin's Creed does, for example, is it, you know, they would have in their game about um, setting kind of Cleopatra's Egypt. They've got this incredibly faithful or painstaking um, reenactment of what Alexandria would look like. And you do get a set. I mean, I've never seen anything that's given well, me. And, I, and sometimes you, you can find online videos of people, you know, they've got ancient historians to comment. I suppose they haven't asked you, Tom. They get ancient well, historians to comment on the design of Athens or the design of Rome and to say, how is accurate is this? So I looked at London, Viking London. Right. Um 
I, I thought it inaccurate. Did you? That's disappointing. It was it was like a very fresh Roman ruin with lots of Roman statues standing everywhere. I think that's And you don't think that's right? You don't think that's right? No, I don't. I don't. But having said that, I thought it was amazing. I mean, it, right. it, it, you kind of feel that um, in, in a fantasy, that is what, what abandoned Rome in London should look like. Yeah. Uh, and that must, be, that must be part of fun because I, I don't want to play a computer game where everything is absolutely... No, I suppose I mean, not. That, you know, you want, you want a degree of creativity and experiment. But the other extent to which they're political is that um, I, I look at slightly askance at the Vikings one because I believe the English are the baddies. So Alfred the Great King is, Alfred is the baddie, apparently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. he's the I'm, main sorry, baddie. Boy, so that's what decided me not to get it. I'm not, and, I'm not, giving, I'm not lending my, my support to that. It's French company, isn't it? So, you know, you suspect the worst. Canadian, French Canadian, I think. So they'd released yeah, a couple well, of very, go. very successful games set in the Crusades and in the Renaissance. Then they released the third one, which was set in the American War of Independence, and you played an American fighting the British. And their sales in Britain were much worse than anywhere <laughs> else. That moment made me proud to be British to see that statistic that people didn't want to. I hope that people in Wessex will not be buying this anti-Alfredian nonsense. But it will be interesting to to find out whether people in Germany, for example, are ambivalent about playing war games in which the Germans are always painted as the... I mean, they're always the villains, aren't they? You're killing Nazis. I mean, that must be a weird thing to do if you're a, a teenage gamer in Frankfurt and you're basically engaged in shooting you know, people who are mocked-up versions of your great-grandfather and his buddies. Yeah. Do you not think? Yeah, I do. Yeah, I do. I mean, right And it also ra- yeah. raises the question that... Um, Alan Allport, who's a historian himself and a listener to the podcast raised on Twitter about taste. He said, at what point do you cross the line? And do you think, I mean, the Vikings were incredibly brutal. They enslaved people, bashed their heads in with their axes or whatever. Do you think there's ever a taste issue, Tom? Well, I, th- I think that's interesting. I mean, that, that, that is an interesting question, which touches on a much broader issue, which is when do, um, atrocities and enslavement and imperial expansion when when does it cease to be a, a legitimate subject for entertainment yeah um and, that's a really and good I think question that that, i think that is a, a huge question and i think that that could be the theme of a, another episode where we we discuss that issue um and i think that that is actually the perfect point on which to um pack up the board game put away the well, dice, leave it hanging yeah leave it hanging so thanks ever so much so uh, see you next episode uh, we'll see you next time. Tom has been uh, crushed. I have conquered the board. <laughs> um, I just wanted to get that in, actually. And uh, yeah, we'll see you next time. We've got, um, I can't remember what we've got lined up for next week. Persia. We've got Persia. Persia. Great. Well, I'm really looking forward to that. What have the Persians ever done for us? Yeah. Why, why Persia basically has invented everything. It's a great episode. <laughs> Look forward to it. Bye. All right. Goodbye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Caddy Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, 
Was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me, so I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii, okay? And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts.